a zero-day campaign isn't necessarily going to fit the playbook that I designed yesterday. And what happens when it's outside the script? An AI response in that scenario gives me much better assurance that I can respond with a unique and appropriate defensive tactic to contain the particular situation. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Ask any CIO what keeps them up at night, and they are likely to respond with security. Even if it is not the first answer, it will undoubtedly be in the top three or four of their priorities. In fact, once the dramatic rush to a remote work-from-home world was over, the attention turned to, you guessed it, security. Today, I'm pleased to sit down with one of the top thought leaders in the cybersecurity space, J.R. Tsort, Chief Information Security Officer for Darktrace, a company pioneering the use of AI in cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, J.R. Thank you, Jeff. A pleasure to be here. JR, I'd love to start with your background. It is so relevant to our conversation today. Take us on your journey, won't you? Yeah, I'd love to. The, uh, the journey starts on the help desk. I took a job uh, answering phones and fixing printers. And uh, from there, I, my career just kind of grew up in the data center, uh, from sysadmin type work to networking and storage and and ultimately, as I, I took roles with increased responsibility, it led me into governance type roles and, and spending a lot of time on different functions across the IT uh, department. Uh, this is all working for a company that was going through a tremendous growth over 20 years, uh, ultimately reaching 35,000 employees by the time that I exited. That gave me an opportunity to experiment with a, a number of different job roles within IT and I've always kind of had this passion for personal privacy in the background, which which has given me an appreciation and for information security in my personal life. And it's a uh, subject matter that I've always really felt strongly about. So I ultimately ended up in a space where I could marry uh, my, my information security passion in my personal life with a governance role and really take on the leadership of a cybersecurity function within, uh, within Micron. And that's really positioned me and put me in a spot to to rebuild a program uh, to respond to a, an increased risk profile over, over the last uh, five to eight years. And that's uh, where I got uh, some great opportunities, learned a lot of lessons, and was able to take part in a, in a really amazing team. That's excellent. There was a couple of things in there that really jumped out at me. One is we, we share a similar start in our careers. My first job was a remote data center manager, which sounds really, really <laughs> fancy. And what that meant was the IS department was down the street from the bank where I worked, and I managed the printer that was in, the, in amongst the programmers. And my job was to tear off the green bar and run it around on the floor. So, <laughs> auspicious beginnings. The, the other yeah. thing that really jumped out at me, JR, was the opportunity to marry something that was important in your personal life, your personal privacy and pursuits of that with your business life. Isn't it always so much richer when you can find uh, positions that align with that? 
Well, yes, it, it is. And, and for me, it's, it's become mandatory. I mean, I, if I'm not enjoying what I do and have a passion for what I do, then uh, my health suffers. I just, you know, it's hard to get up in the morning when, when you don't really have that passion that drives you. Uh, at some point, the salary, the benefits uh, are great and helpful. They're not always driving, uh, driving you to improve and, and move forward. Yeah, it's that satisfaction. When, when we talked last week, you described your approach to cybersecurity as somewhat of a balancing act. Could you talk us through what you meant by that and what you're trying to keep in balance as you approach cybersecurity? You know, I think this uh, there's probably a couple of ways to look at this, and it's in, in the cybersecurity industry and in, in my profession and, and in the CISO peer group we're always dealing with a balance of usability versus security or, or productivity versus security. And this is very classic, very well understood. Uh, I, could, I could make an enterprise highly secure by just unplugging it from the internet. Yeah. Uh, but that turns out to have a pretty negative effect on revenue and, and productivity. So we can't do that. Likewise, we can't open up the floodgates and move data around everywhere we'd like to either. So we've got to find that right balance. Another way to look at this is uh, I want to get as much value from the data as I can. And I'm often going to work with the CIO to do this. At the same time, I want to balance the risk of data loss while I'm, I'm maximizing value from that data. So it's, it's about balance and it tends to be and it needs to be a unique organization decision on, on where to strike that balance on the organization's particular business model and their risk profile. Yeah, it really comes down to their their appetite for risk as you're looking yeah. at that. I love that approach. Do you find that amongst your peers that's a unique approach or are most CISOs that you run into doing that same balancing act? I think it's pretty common. It probably depends a little bit on your maturity in the role. Maybe uh, if you're new in the role and you're motivated by locking everything down, that, that might be more common. But for anybody with, with some gray hair, they're going to be trying to strike that balance. And then it becomes almost more of a focus on relationship building with the executive team in order to get to that balanced conversation and less about following the latest threat intel, perhaps. Yeah, you almost have to have that relationship to understand the appetite for risk, right? I mean, that's that's part of it. It helps immensely. <laughs> and I've I've worked uh, in both situations and, and really if you can build some trust and have some relationship and some credibility, uh, you'll just go much farther in a number of different contexts. Yeah, yeah. Well, in addition to our auspicious beginnings in information technology, we also share uh, another common part of our story. Um, before I joined what was then Blue Lock and is now a part of InterVision, I was a customer. You were a customer of Darktrace. Yeah. What has it been like for you going from customer of to CISO of Darktrace? And what things factored in your decision to make that move? It's, it's frankly been a lot of fun uh, to, to make this switch. This is you know, the first time that I've worked for a, a real product company. Uh, certainly the first time I've worked for a cybersecurity product company. And so uh, I find myself on the other side of the table now mm -hmm. from, yep. from where I've spent 20 years. And that's, it's really rewarding because there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of context that I can bring. And, and I sit down and I spend time with 
with the sales and marketing functions inside this company to to round out their context. And right. I spend a lot of time with with folks inside the company and from a product perspective as well to to give them additional context. And I've really enjoyed that. And it's it's allowed me to really get involved in a lot of different areas of the business, uh, which has been pretty rewarding. I think, you know, the reason that I'm at Dark Trace is is probably a couple of things. One, having been a customer, I've seen the tech work in some highly complex environments and some very interesting use cases. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a foundational belief that, that the technology works. And then while I was a customer, I was able to get obviously get to know some of the folks within the company and found that uh, the culture was really dynamic and really energized and they're highly motivated and it was a a culture that aligned with with me and so I wanted to be part of that uh, that culture yeah it gets back to relationship again like we were talking about uh, yeah. earlier it's about the Absolutely. relationships that you build yeah yeah so you've spoken a lot about the security stack where AI in general fits and where dark trace uh, their product specifically fits in the security stack. Starting with that stack, can you describe for our listeners the key layers of the security stack and where AI and Darktrace land in that? Sure, sure. Um, so I have some thoughts to share there. I'm probably going to oversimplify to some extent just in the interest of time. But I think when I approach uh, the security stack in, in air quotes, I think about uh, a handful of layers, um, starting, first of all, with preventative controls. I mean, if we can just stop the bad thing from happening, that's obviously ideal and and we would want to do that. But again, we have to balance that with productivity. So Mm -hmm. if I can't put in a preventative control, then I need to have a detection capability. And this, uh, I often use the term apparatus to describe this because it can be really a lot of different technologies, a lot of different approaches. It depends heavily on network architecture and and SaaS to on-prem operating models. And so there can be quite a bit that goes into a detection capability. So I just use that term as a, as a broad umbrella. And then you need a, a response capability. So if, if I can't prevent it, and if I detected that something happens, how do I respond? Uh, how do I wrap that up, close it out, and then there's, there's a forensic slash investigation layer on the back end of all of this as well, in which not only do you need to understand if there's uh, a malicious actor in the environment, but you also end up providing support to HR and to legal for investigations that they need to conduct. You are in a position because you have the data to support maybe the internal audit department and other functions within the business. So this investigation support is another layer that that I frequently pay attention to. So, now, is that different than the response layer? So you're separating those, right? Responses. Uh, I do. Okay. I do separate those simply because responses is more real time. Can I stop the bad thing from happening? And, yeah. and how quickly yeah. can I do that? And that often has business revenue connected to it. Mm-hmm. So. Clearly, I want to I want to make sure that I have great talent there and, and good processes in place. The investigation support or forensics work is typically has a much longer tail. Yeah. So you can use different tools, maybe different staff, different skill sets, um, 
there might be, you know, if, if you're doing uh, litigation support for on behalf of your legal department, these can take years to resolve. And so that's a, it's a very different thing than, you know, a, a quick two hour response time. Right. Right. That makes sense. So when I look at, you know, each layer in those capabilities and I think about how does an organization with massive amounts of, of audit and log data uh, parse through that? And, and when I look at detection, how do I monitor? How do I understand what the data moves and where it moves to? It quickly becomes a real challenge. And you have to not only look at in a large enterprise, you've got uh, a lot of endpoints on the network generating a lot of audit data. How do you go through that? Even if you collect it all, which is challenge number one, Right. how would you look at it to determine if something bad is happening? So that's an area where five, eight years ago, the industry really started looking at machine learning as how do we go after this problem? Uh, we can't have a human parse through it all. We can't come up with enough signatures in a fast enough time to to detect everything that's going through that data. So, so machine learning enters, enters the world here uh, in the cybersecurity context as a way to understand and make some sense of anomalous behavior within that data set. Uh, so clearly, dark trace plays a role there. And that's ultimately, having looked at a handful of other technologies uh, at the time, dark trace is where my team landed in terms of a machine learning capability to make sense from a detection perspective. Now, what's been interesting then, if we feel good about our ability to detect what's going on in the environment, and that could mean log files, it could mean packet capture, it could mean SAS APIs and journals and that sort of thing. But if I can get my hands on all of the different data sources within my organization and where my users live and where my data lives, then my next step is how do I respond to something that I've detected? Because if I have, if I do a great job detecting it, but I don't have the ability to respond, I'm not really doing myself any favors. I mean, it's maybe it's better to know that your data is being stolen than not know. But if I can't prevent it, then I really haven't closed the risk for the organization. Right. Right. So I need to respond to what I've detected, and and again, starts with humans. Then we found as an industry that man, a lot of these tasks are repeatable. And now we have SOAR and we're going to do playbooks and we're going to automate and, mm-hmm. and that moved the needle forward quite a bit for the security team, but didn't quite get a hundred percent there. And that's where I think an AI approach is helpful in this regard because a zero day campaign isn't necessarily going to fit the playbook that I designed yesterday. And right. What happens right. when it's outside the script? An AI response in that scenario gives me much better assurance that uh, I can respond with a unique and appropriate defensive tactic to contain the particular situation. So we've got machine learning, and that's doing a great job on detection. Now, how do I rapidly deploy a response capability? And for a small shop, even if they have a, a security team, they're not working on the weekends or at night. So what do I do if an outbreak happens in those windows? Yeah. This is where AI now enters the picture. And so of course, with each new solution, we come up with a range of new problems and new questions. So now we find ourselves asking, how can I trust the AI? 
what if it does something wrong? What if it tanks my business? And these are all questions that every organization has to go through before they start trusting this technology. And it's not particularly unique to cybersecurity AI, but I mean, you've all witnessed AI in other industries and other contexts. And You know, JR, I, I was wondering about that. There are so many that don't trust AI. I, I wrote a piece several weeks ago for Forbes that was the skeptic's guide to AI. And it was really kind of a popular piece. And I think it resonated a lot with people that uh, may not trust the AI engines or the AI results. So how do you approach those skeptics? So Darktrace's approach there, and, and I'm sure there are others, but Darktrace's approach is to say, well, let's just show you what the AI would have done in that particular situation. And let's have a human confirm that that makes sense or it doesn't make sense. And we go through that kind of operating model for a period. And what tends to happen then organically is the human that's validating those gets enough transactions reviewed over time that they say, well, you know, this AI thing, it's usually accurate. It's usually doing the right thing. So I'm going to go ahead and rely on it a little bit more, especially because I don't want to get woken up at 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. So now we move to these models where, well, we'll let the AI work at night. But if a human's in the room, I want the human working on this. And that's typically the next progression of maturity. And then, you know, ultimately, really high-performing organizations here come to realize that the AI aspect of this can act so much faster than the human, even if the human's in the room looking at the screen. And so... When you're dealing with a zero-day ransomware situation, seconds matter. Right. And if the human that's watching the screen that day has stepped out to refill the coffee mug, that could make the difference. And so we get to this point now where we want the AI to act immediately just to buy time, if nothing else. But go ahead and shut down that anomalous connection uh, until the security guy gets back in the room and, and takes a look at it and understands, well, what's happening and, and let me fix it. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a really interesting way to contain a particular outbreak with an, an AI response capability. But there's also another opportunity here for AI, which is in the investigation support perspective. And that's to say, well, we've detected three or four minor anomalies our human SOC analyst's job then is to research those and understand if there's something greater happening. Well, why can't an AI do that? And, and that's, that's really where Dartrace has been going then is let's have the AI investigate all of your alerts. Now, again, we're only talking about alerts that are anomalous because of our, our machine learning capability. So we're only looking at anomalous behavior, but we don't necessarily know that it's malicious or not. We just know that it's different. So now let's take all of these alerts that are anomalies, see if they're related, and and stitch together a timeline of related alerts that may turn out to be something greater. And yeah. so so that capability really moves the needle forward for the SOC team that's on the ground investigating these alerts. And we've known for some time that alert fatigue is, is a real thing and it drives down productivity over time. So let's take 
the bulk of that alert review off of the human. Mm-hmm. Have an AI do that. Have the AI stitch together an overall picture of what's going on. And then have the human work with that at a much higher level of thought. And it turns out that that's also really invigorating for the human on the SOC team because they get to take a look at overall context and think about how the organization should respond instead of digging through the the 12th antivirus alert that day. Yeah, yeah. It's a completely different uh, workload for the individual. And frankly, I think it's more productive. And, And teams that I've talked to, they get a ton more value out of doing that. They're more energized about the job and maybe their retention stays longer for the organization. This is a role that's that's got a fairly high attrition rate. So all kinds of good things can happen if we can make the human SOC analyst job more efficient and frankly, more interesting. Yeah, let them do the higher level analysis. So what I think I hear you saying is AI isn't just one slice in one layer. It runs through all four layers as you describe them and plays a role in each one of those. What the dark trace approach here, I don't, I don't want to speak for the whole industry. The dark trace approach here has been a very purpose built AI for specific capabilities. We're not talking about Skynet here that, that controls everything. Yeah. But we're yeah. talking about, you know, areas of value that really matter and that's, you know, immediate response to prevent an outbreak uh, of something bad and it's trying to reduce the massive hours number of hours in terms of investigation that the SOC analyst does yeah yeah so so very different capabilities there but both driven by machine decisions right so where does a sim tool fit in in this with an AI uh, tool that's in your security stack, do you still need a traditional SIM tool? Uh, Some organizations might still need it. Um, I I think its role starts to become more of that uh, historian and audit log of all of the security events that happen in my enterprise. There might be other security data that's relevant and interesting outside of what Darktrace is doing. There probably is in a large organization. So the SIM still becomes that, serves as that central collection point uh, to provide my historical view of what went on in the enterprise over a multi-year period, let's say. Okay, okay. What's changing Do you, do you teams, see a, a time when you end up pointing AI at that, at the historical aspects of it over a longer period of time? Well, I, th- I think what's what's changing for teams as they consider an AI approach within their security stack is that the approach of having a human watch the SIM for known uh, configuration rule sets is becoming uh, enhanced. If you think about having dart trace feed in to that existing SIM view, a high fidelity event that's already been investigated and is already telling you, here's the endpoints that might need to be looked at. It's a very different level of value than sitting at that same screen and me piecing together five different antivirus alerts from all over the company. And, oh, there's this strange email attachment that was downloaded seconds before. So 
so what I found, and and you know, I'm just one data point, but but what I found was in that model where you've got a, a mature sim and you've got dark trace kind of being brought into the team is the human analysts started to navigate away from looking at the sim screen to starting to, to work right in the dark trace capability because they just find more value in the interface, in the data, in the search capabilities. So that's just organically started to be where, where they logged in each morning. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's going to be different for every organization and, and some organizations have different regulatory environments. And so, I'm not here to say that the sin is going away or that it really changes or or reduces in value. But I think I think the day-to-day picture of what an analyst is looking at might start shifting away from the sim to to a uh, a dark trace capability. That makes sense. And it gets back to what you were talking about at the outset about understanding the organization understanding what are their risks, what are their risk profiles, uh, and really looking at the various tools and how to apply them within that organization. Yeah, and it's it's going to be a different mix, obviously, for every organization out there based on their budget, their risk tolerance, the, the CISO or, or the security leader in play, right? There's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, variables to that equation. So we found, and in, in internally at Darktrace, we've been thinking about there's probably three or four different maturity models on how organizations deal with this, and that's we've been working internally to try to put that picture together to make it a little bit easier to talk to. Yeah. yeah. So I, I touched on this briefly in the opening. Uh, many organizations have been pushed into remote work and enabling work from home, perhaps before they were really ready. So as you've been looking at this and watching this occur, does this open up new areas of risk, new vulnerabilities? And and what advice do you have for organizations that are adopting this new work from home now and in the future as we move forward? Yeah, this is, you know, something that uh, I find really unique at, at this point in history that most organizations around the world are all going through the same thing right now as we as we rapidly try to work from home. And anytime I I think that the IT function has to make a rapid change in a business process, like remote connectivity, Mm -hmm. there's room for mistakes and it's not their fault. It's, it's, they're moving at speed. They're also trying to figure out how do I support the enterprise now when I work from home? I, I think it's well understood. If you look at like an example of Amazon S3 buckets, right? There's, there's lots of stories in the past where, a simple misconfiguration uh-huh. led to a, a loss of data. So if you think about an IT department making very rapid changes to how employees work, there's lots of opportunity for just misconfigurations, just mistakes that are no one's fault. And so if that's your paradigm, then again, you want uh, visibility as much as you can. I want to at least understand where my data is moving in this new capability. And if I've depended for a long time on a corporate managed laptop running my antivirus and my DLP solution on it, and that's been great, but now I have somebody connecting from home on their unmanaged personally owned device, right? what does that do? 
yeah. my paradigm and, and how do I rapidly try to put something in place with duct tape and bailing wire to, to give me some assurance even in that scenario. Mm-hmm. So that's you know the situation that a lot of CIOs are, are dealing with right now. Um, there's things that can be done. And again, I, I bring this back to that balance. Some organizations are dealing with whether they survive or not. Right. So their risk tolerance is very different now than what it was a month ago. And so that leads to a, a different security decision made for that organization. It's security can't just be black and white. It's on or it's off, but you've got to make those decisions. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for the security team to add a ton of value to an organization as the CIO is trying to rapidly make a bunch of changes. If they're working hand in hand, that can be a really productive, valuable uh, relationship. If they're at odds with each other, it's going to be painful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that holds true, probably accentuated uh, by the current environment that if your security team and your frontline IT team are not aligned or not working together, it's going to be painful. It's going to be even more painful going through what we've been going through the last several weeks. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 A lot of stress out there right now. Yeah. So JR, we're, we're beginning to run out of time here. And I know that you've listened to a few episodes of Status Go. So, you know, I love to end with a call to action for our audience. So what is one thing our listeners should do tomorrow because they listen to us today? Well, I like the specificity of your call to action. I find it really helpful to narrow focus. And as I think through kind of our conversation today and and other conversations that I've been having the past few weeks, I think it's imperative to ensure that the CIO, the CISO, one, are in close communication with each other. Two, that together they're going and talking with the rest of the executive team at the organization on topics of business risk and employee operating model changes. Now, to have that conversation, you've got to have some visibility. You've got to have some data. You've got to be able to articulate what additional risk the organization is taking on, what kind of behaviors are we seeing. But, I, and, and I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't hesitate making changes to the operating model. As, as we discussed, those might have to be done and are being done. But we want to ensure that we're surfacing the new risks that are generated and ensure that the executive team are still within their own risk tolerance. And has that risk tolerance changed? Perhaps, but they need to have the data necessary to understand the risk of the organization in order to make their next decision. And and the CIO and the CISO are in the best position to provide this picture and paint this picture. Now, this process is really just basic ERM, right? It's enterprise risk management. Uh, mature organizations will already be doing this and they'll be looking at me with their shoulders shrugged. But <laughs> my experience with ERM is that they probably meet on a quarterly or semi-annual basis to have that conversation. Yeah. And right now that might need to be a weekly conversation at some level. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's worth pulling out the document, taking a look at your ERM process and ensure that, conversations around risks are being had and that risk decisions are being made by the business leaders that are in the best position to take on that risk. 
it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about understanding the risk, but in this environment, the risk profile may have changed and you're not going to know that unless you ask. And I love that it's a partnership between the CIO and the CISO. JR, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you sitting down with us today and talking through this. I would love to have you back on the show and maybe dive a little deeper into some of these things uh, in the future, but I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. Jeff, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to more. Outstanding. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for JRT Sort. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.